0: What does legalism look like to you? If you think about that phrase, legalism, what comes to mind? Uh, It might look like this for some of you. Maybe you grew up in a church tradition where you were out in public and you saw a couple that goes to your church enjoying a glass of wine, and you were like, I had so much respect for them. No, I don't. This is what legalism does look like to some. Um, What if you found out somebody ended, you know, the day watching a television show and you were like, I can't believe they watched that show. I had so much respect for them. Legalism might look like that for you. But there's another side to legalism that I think I've also heard um, when I hear someone say, uh... Well, we, we love the Bible, but we're not legalistic about reading it. Or um, somebody invited me to church or a small group, well, we're just not legalistic. We don't, we don't do all of those things. Legalism might look like that to you. Legalism is a very strange beast. And I want to make sure we're very clear this morning because the acts themselves are not legalistic. To not drink a glass of wine is not legalistic. To not watch a show is not legalistic. To choose to read my Bible is not legalistic. To choose to want to be a part of a church, to pray, to go to small group, that is not legalistic. Those are simple acts. Doing or not doing, it doesn't make the act legalistic. Legalism has everything to do with your heart. When you think, About those things legalism tends to cause us to compare ourselves with other people and boy does it try and make us think we are better off with God legalism is an issue of the heart I can do this and I can be good before God Several years ago, um, Michael Bloomberg, who was the mayor of New York City, he was known for his anti-smoking, his healthy eating campaigns, uh, his desire for stricter gun laws. And at the death of a classmate, he said this to an interviewer, and you can, you can see it on the screen. He says this, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close legalism is an issue of the heart it says i can do more to impress god than what christ has done it is very dangerous and it can kill us and what we are going to see paul fighting against is it will enslave us but there's two sides to it there's legalism and there's Idol worship, And we'll talk about both in just a second. Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 19, he gives us this description of how he's really feeling. He says, Oh my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again. And they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. I wish I were with you right now. So I could change my tone. But at this distance, I don't know how else to help you. Paul is saying, look, I'm, I've got a pen and I've got paper. And I know you can't see how I'm really feeling passionate about you, but I can't change my tone. It's like when we send a text message or an email, and we just think we just think, oh man, this is this is a simple phrase I'm sending it. But because people don't know your your, your the way your body is sitting or the way your uh, your face is acting, you get a text back like I th- I thought we were friends, and you're like all I said was see you tomorrow. Like this is the problem with the written word when you're trying to communicate something that is. So so deeply uh in in you like paul is going i I wish you could see my face and my tears and my my body in its posture because i am in pain for you guys but the tone of the letter is intense and it needs to be because everything is on the line if they miss this paul can't get them any other way so he writes this letter And he's trusting that God will communicate to them through these words. The intensity that Paul feels is because he knows what's on the line is what God values most. Listen to Paul's words, Romans chapter eight. He says this, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them To become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And we've talked about God as father in this letter to the Galatian church. By faith, it means we are heirs. Uh, We have received all that God wants to give us through faith. Verse 30 says, And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Into the Corinthian church, Paul goes over this again. He says, but whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. And then in 1 John... John, the 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 one loved by Jesus, says, "Dear friends, we are already God's children, but He has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we are we will be like Him, for He will we we will see Him as He really is. I'm telling you, you and I will spend way more time speculating about the unknown will of God. We will." We want to know so many answers, so many questions. God, why did you do this? God, what's this about? What's the purpose of this? What's the purpose of my life? We want to know all the hidden things. The power of the scripture is that he has revealed a few things, that if we will build our life on the few things, all the unknown things, they won't seem as much of a big deal. And what we know about the scripture, what we know of God's plan is that he has revealed that he is transforming us into the image of his son. You can take that to the bank. You can go, I don't know God's will today for what's gonna go on that I haven't seen, but I know that what's revealed here is that he's at work. He is working in me. He is shaping in me. He is changing things in me. So that I'll look like Jesus. Wrap your heart and your mind around that more than all of your unanswered questions, and I promise you, your unanswered questions won't seem as big. When you understand that the purpose of our existence is to reflect the one who made us, so many things get answered. So many things become clear because the trifling things don't seem as big a deal when we know that God is at work in us, forming us into the image of his son. Paul writes and he travels and he preaches and he bears the chains so that people will know that turning to idols and turning to try to be good will not have the same result as living free. Trusting that Christ is enough for our lives to become all that God wants them to be, he takes them back down memory lane. Starting in verse 8 of chapter 4. Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? You are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. Verse 11, I fear for you. Have you ever had a Christ-following brother or sister look you in the face say, I fear for you? I fear that you will go back to the idols that enslaved you that are not God's at all. I fear that you are in love with your works more than you are with the works of Christ. Have you ever had a brother or sister sit across the table from you and say these words? Paul is saying, I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. For I have become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. There are times that you and I have to consider where we've come from. With so many people in this room, with so many lives in this room, our stories are not the same. All of you can tell stories about how things were different before Christ. Some of you, you can tell stories of your self-righteousness. You can tell stories of how you look down on everyone else because they didn't meet your standards until you recognized Jesus was the standard and you were broken. Some of you come from self-righteous backgrounds, but if it were not for Christ, you would still be looking down on the rest of the world. Some of you come from, from backgrounds where you were feeling trapped, whether it was an addiction or lies or consequences of past decisions, yet somehow the gospel made its way to you. You tell the hard stories of, I was trapped by these things. Yet somehow Christ set me free. Some of you can tell the story how everything was fine. And Jesus interrupted all of my fine. I thought I had it all. I thought I had things together, but then Jesus interrupted my fine and I'm so thankful for it. I'm so glad that he did because I really did have a need. All of us can tell stories. Some of you can tell stories of pure horror, things that were crushing and the nightmare that was your life. And if Christ had not intervened, and if the body of Christ had not come around, you have no idea where you would be. All of these stories are significant Because in all of them, whether I'm self-righteous, or I'm addicted, or I'm in a horror story, or I think everything is fine, Christ interrupted. Some of you can tell and remember these stories, and Paul does that with them. He says, don't you know where you've come from? Whatever our story, we all had a cruel master that we bowed to. Acceptance. Some of you are bowing to acceptance. And if people will just accept me, performance, money, fame, sex, power, laziness, hopelessness, fear, despair, legalism, working to earn something before God. And you just keep going through the motions, hoping it will get better. And you are not finding freedom. Religious attitudes, judgmental hearts, hard hearts, pride, you just go, the list could go on and on and on. All of these are cruel masters and Paul is going through labor pains, attempting to keep these people free as he is living free by the Spirit. Last week we talked about the table of Christ that the early church gathered around and we will gather around that table again today. They shared something in common as they went to these tables they shared the bad news of the gospel is that we cannot fix ourselves. As Miss, as Miss Jen said, she, it was like the law breaks us. We look at it and go, I can't do that. We all share that in common around the table, but we share the good news of the good news is that Christ fulfilled it for us. We come as needy people. We come as dependent people. We come as people who go to that table, take that bread, take the juice, and go, thank you, Jesus, for being enough because I am not on my own. Nothing will be enough, but you are enough. For us, Paul also says this, he says, we are so glad that we now know him. But Paul says, better yet, God will admit that he knows you. Like, isn't that a bigger deal? Like, I can stand up here today and just say, you know what, I know Michael Jordan. And every single one of you could go, no, you don't. But if Michael Jordan were to walk in and be like, I know Jason, he's my man. We're going to eat dinner together. He dunked on me one time. He did all, I mean, I, like if he were to admit that he knows me, that would change everything. See, I can say I know someone, but to have that person validate and go, I know him, that's a great feeling. Let's just take it to another level. Like you have friends that will admit they know you. Like just think about that for a second. Like there are people who will be like, those are my people. You have people who will admit that they know you. Counted a blessing, because <laughs> there are some people who don't have that. You know people, and there are people willing to say, I know you, and that is so good to know. It's freeing, and the fact that God would say, I know you. Them. And this was to people who thought they were without a shot. This is to people who thought they were out of the story. This is for people who thought, there is no way God would have anything to do with me. And now I'm not just being able to say, I know God, but God is actually going, ah, I like that one. We're, we're good. I know, Jason. What a privilege to consider where we've come from and to who will admit that they know us creator of the universe would look on us say i know you you're my people this is so freeing you can see why it would be considered labor pains for paul in these two points paul reminds them where they've come from and who they know and the danger is you have jewish believers going back trying to work hard to earn god's love and earn god's favor and earn god's acceptance and approval and you have gentile believers who are probably tempted to go you know well well, if jesus has covered me i can go take all my idols too i can just add jesus to my stand of things that i love jesus can be in there but then this can be in there and then this can be in there and i can do whatever i want right and paul's saying no you're actually going to find yourself bound up Just like those who try to live by the law, just like those who try to put all their idols into the pouch and say, this is all mine and Jesus is just a part of it. And he's going, no, you are going to be trapped and it is not going to end well for you. This is not the first time that this has happened. One month after one of the most incredible rescue missions of all, the Israelites have been wandering the desert They've been on a mission. They've been on a journey. God has stepped in and rescued them miraculously. You find them wanting to go back to slavery. Exodus chapter 16 says this. These are the Israelites complaining. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. Talk about whining. Talk about complaining See here's the thing You read the story We understand There's no evidence That they were actually starving There's no evidence for it They're looking around And going Oh I just wish we were back in Egypt Never mind the whips on our back Never mind when our kids Were taken from us Never mind the terrible circumstances We were living in But at least we had pots of meat To go back This is the problem We don't see people falling off and dying, nor are they sick with disease. For the last month, they have have had everything they needed. My guess is where things got hard and where complaints started coming is because they couldn't predict and couldn't control tomorrow. Isn't that our problem? That's not easy, right? We wanna be in control. We wanna put everything in our hands. We wanna be the ones who get it done And the Israelites didn't have that. They didn't have control of tomorrow. They were learning to live by faith when they had lived by sight for so long. Everything that was familiar, everything what I know, control, nothing having to wait, going after what I think is best. Guys, that seems really attractive to the control freaks that we are. Doesn't it? God lets these people know and he gives them this manna from heaven. Daily, he says, you will have enough for today, but don't you pick up some for tomorrow. Except for the Sabbath, you will have what you need for today. And that makes us furious, doesn't it? God, just a couple days down the road, maybe, give me a week of provision. That would help me so much. We are living by faith. The manna is not just a lesson about God's provision for the physical The manna is a pointer to a time when God would provide the bread from heaven that would meet our needs. The other bread from heaven would meet all of our needs and keep us full, and he would provide us rescue. This is Jesus. Jesus is that bread. The Israelites trusted God to fill their bellies. We have trusted God to fill our lives. Everything. Christ covering us. And this is very, this is tough because the way to freedom is to trust Christ. This isn't what we want to hear. I need you to know this isn't what we want to hear. What we want to hear is God, give me a checklist. And we've talked about this. The problem with all of this is that I think if I just follow these checklists, I will hurry up God's plan to form Christ in me. If I just do all the list things, I don't have to worry about relationship because the list things will be taken care of. This is our problem. Relationship with God is so hard to talk about, to figure out, to understand. You know what's not hard? Doing the right thing and not doing the wrong thing. It's why we're addicted to checklists. Because we don't know how to do relationship with God. We don't know how to walk with him we don't know how to listen to him so what we do is we go give me the list i love the list gives me something to do and boast about and it's why we find ourselves trapped and i want to be clear when we try and speed up god's forming christ in us to say, I want to I study the Bible, I want to help, I want opportunities to serve, I want to read, I want to pray, I want to share, I want to attend church, I want to do more. What actually can begin to happen is we will start taking our eyes off of Christ and we will start looking at those acts. And the minute we start looking at all those acts, we have fallen for the trap of legalism. The minute I start saying that my, my prayer life, my giving, my church attendance, my service, whatever. The moment I start saying that that stuff is more important than Christ himself. I am teetering on that line of legalism. I am going, God, this will impress you way more than what Jesus has done. And this is why Paul is saying, you've got to fight to stay free. Don't go back into the old ways. Paul lets us know here that whether it's worshiping idols or it's turning to the law for salvation, the severity of that choice is the same because both of them make very little of Christ. When I say my idols are awesome and they're the best and they will satisfy, I make little of Jesus. And when I come over here and I say, the law is awesome and it'll save me and I can do more and it makes little of Jesus. Both have the same outcome. Paul's saying, stay free. The Galatians had lost sight of Christ. They turned to the law-keeping, or they were returning to their idols. Good luck charms, just adding Jesus to the mix. But Paul takes them to this place in verse 21. And I love it. I just want to warn you, sarcasm will be used here. <laughs> Paul says it. Tell me, you who want to live under the law... This is a sarcastic jab, and I love Paul for that. It approves my sarcasm. So do you know what the law actually says? Tell me, those of you who want to live under the law, do you even know what it says? And most of them would have to say no. Paul could say, I absolutely do. I know everything about it. I lived it, memorized it, chewed it, tried to live it. I know this thing inside and out let me tell you about the law. And he goes on to tell them that if you try to live by the law, you can't just pick three that you like. You have to live under the whole thing. So don't be picky and choosy because you don't get the option. You want the law? You got to live by the whole thing. That should crush us in and of itself. But he gives them more reasons. He says, you want to live by the law? Then you're saying that Christ died for no reason. That's what you're saying. If you say that you can live the law and you need to live it better than everyone else, you're saying Christ died for nothing. That should break our hearts too. He goes on to say, you want to live by the law and you want to earn favor with God? Here's the problem with that. You try and earn favor with God, you are under a curse. I don't know how much clearer he has to be with us, but because we are people who are stubborn and prideful, It's this kind of reminder that fights for us to stay free. But then Paul does something that most of those trying to live by the law would understand. And he tells one of the most drama-filled stories in the Bible. This is a drama scene that would fill most of the time of a sleazy daytime talk show kind of thing. And it's the story of Abraham and Sarah. At 75, God calls Abraham to leave where he is. And go to a place that he's going to tell them. And in the process of that, God promises Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You're going to have so many descendants, it's going to be crazy. I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed by you. But there's a problem. At 75 years old, Abraham has no children. And so that comes up in conversation. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 4. He says, even when there was no reason for hope... Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations, for God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Thanks for the visual, Paul. At 85, at 85 years old, this is what happens in the story. The promise of this child has still not happened. It's been 10 years since God made this promise. Sarah becomes impatient and comes up with an idea to move God's promise along. A brilliant idea. Actually, it was a terrible idea. When we try to force God's plans into action, things do not go well. If we learn anything from the Old Testament, when we try and put our things into action, when we put our ways into action, things don't go well. Hear that. Sarah comes to Abraham and says, you know what? We haven't had our kid yet. Why don't you just marry my servant girl and have a child with her? See, this is where Abraham should have done the right thing and said, oh baby, no. No, no, no. Ain't no way I'm gonna get with somebody else. But he didn't say that. He's like, meh, okay. I wish Sarah would have been like, you dirty old man, I was just trying to test you or something. I, I don't know. I thought something else would have happened, but it, it did not happen that way. Abraham says, "Yep, yeah, sure, Sarah, that sounds like a great idea. Here's the problem. While that was legal in their society to have multiple wives, it was never God's plan. It was never his intention. And at 86 years old, Abraham and Hagar have a child and as you can imagine everything went smoothly from there on out no it did not in fact Sarah gets incredibly jealous the house that they are living in becomes a nightmare and Sarah ends up throwing Hagar out of the house but the Lord actually steps in and he cares for Hagar and he says I will care for you and for your son and a beautiful relationship you can read about this in Genesis 16 through 20 Hagar recognizes God as the one who sees her And he will be the one who cares for her in this messed up situation. But at 99 years old, God speaks to Abraham again, and he promises them their child. And the child will be on the way, and his name will be Isaac, because that means laughter. Because when Sarah heard about it, she laughed. Just part of it. And in Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 17, Then Abraham bowed down to the ground, but he laughed to himself in disbelief. How could I become the father at the age of 100, he thought. And how can Sarah have a baby when she is 90 years old? So Abraham said to God, may Ishmael live under your special blessing. This is the child that he had with Hagar. But God replied, no, Sarah, your wife will give birth to a son for you. You will name him Isaac, and I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. Did you hear Abraham? Abraham tried to change God's plan. Abraham tried to say, let's do it my way. Let's do it this way. This seems to be working. And God says, no, that's not what I promised. You did things your way. You tried to take it and you tried to run with it. That's not my way. God made a promise. God made a covenant and he's sticking to it. It's going to come about in God's timing. Abraham tries to hijack God's plan, but God remains. And Abraham believes God. Verse 22 of Romans chapter 4. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous, because his works sure weren't. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuming, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. And at 100 years old, Isaac is born. The answer... God actually said he had to be named Isaac because of the laughter, because that's what Sarah did when she heard that she would be a mom that old. But as you can imagine, this new baby created a lot of drama in the house. Ishmael had lived in the house with Hagar and Sarah and Abraham for 14 years. He was the only kid. Isaac comes along, and at three years old, Ishmael turns and begins to torment Isaac. Isaac. He begins to make fun of and mock. And just the house becomes a nightmare. And the Lord says, one of these has to go. Hagar and Ishmael have to leave. That is what God said. He said, they must go and they do. They cannot live together. Why do I tell you this story? Because Paul is about to reveal a deeper meaning to this story that actually happened in history. He's not going to downplay that these were real people's lives, but he is going to help us understand the deeper meaning of that event. Galatians chapter 4 verse 22. The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise, but the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment Of his promise. These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai where people received the law that enslaved them, it bound them up. And now Jerusalem is like Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman and she is our. Mother, Sarah's plan to let Abraham have a child with Hagar and the eventual birth of Ishmael represent our human efforts to bring about God's promise. Did God tell Abraham to take Hagar? Let's just all say it together. No, he did not. He went about it his own way. Sarah was like, hey, this doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to go about it my own way. Human beings have their plans and the result is crushing. They were tormented. Their efforts left them bound and troubled. And even more specifically, these two women serve as illustrations about the old law and the new promise of Christ. Hagar, the law, human efforts. Sarah, freedom, and the work of the Spirit. This picture shows us what freedom looks like. God's plan to bring about his promise. He brings it about in his way. He doesn't need us to move, manipulate, or work towards it. Isaac is a visible reminder that God says and God does. And bringing it all back around, Paul concludes this portion of Galatians 4. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise. Just like Isaac. But you are now being persecuted by those who want to keep the law, just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. But what do the scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. So, dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, we are children of the free woman. So, Christ has truly set us free. Now, make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Just like Hagar and Ishmael could not live in the same house as Abraham and as Sarah and Isaac, so too can't the gospel and trying to live the law live in the same house. It doesn't work. There is a difference. The Spirit of God powers something that God requires. And I love that we will get to talk about this next week. But Paul uses these very real descriptions to help the church stay free. He's afraid for them. He's begging for them. He's in labor pains for them. Because what's at stake is Christ being formed in them. How is Christ formed in us? By faith. We trust him. And it changes how we walk. Band, you guys can come up. As we close this morning, I've been listening to an audio book on my runs called The Things They Carried. It is a very difficult book to listen to. It's about the Vietnam War, and it is, it is painful to listen to. And it's about what soldiers carried in their backpacks as they were out in Vietnam. And one of the stories that is told is there's two soldiers. Uh, they both lay down, and uh, they're just chilling by this at this campsite. And one of the soldiers looks at another soldier and he says, Man, can I tell you something? And the other soldier says, Sure, go ahead. He says, you, you know what I wish for if I had one wish? He was like, No. He says, If I had one wish, I wish I could get a letter from my dad tomorrow. And I wish that that letter from my dad would say, Son, I don't care about the medals. Because he says later, he goes on to explain that the reason he joined, he went into the war, the reason he didn't show fear or being afraid when he was drafted to go fight a war, he didn't even understand was because his dad just kept harping on all the medals that he would win and all the things that his son would do, and he wasn't being courageous, he was just afraid of screwing up and being somebody who, who didn't let, who let his dad down. All this guy wanted was a letter from his dad that says, "I don't need to see any medals." If I can say one thing to you guys this morning, you want a letter saying, "You don't have to keep performing." Here it is. Some of you never heard the phrase, I don't care about the medals that you win. If I can tell you one thing this morning, it is that God doesn't need to see your medals. He doesn't need to see your performance. He doesn't need to see your accolades. He doesn't need to see your resume. The Bible, from cover to cover, is about performance, it's just not about your performance. It is about the performance of his son, the perfect faith and obedience of Jesus on our behalf. That is what this story is about from cover to cover. He doesn't need to see your medals. And in fact, I wish some of you would stop trying to show him your medals and just say thank you for Jesus because that is how we stay free The Christian never moves beyond Jesus. There's nothing more than Jesus. There's just more and more and more of Jesus. The danger is that as you and I try and put our faith in our works, we can become very moral people. You know who also was very moral? The Pharisees. You know what they did? They killed Jesus. You can be an upstanding citizen and not know Jesus. It is not about your medals. It is not about what you can hold up to impress God. It is what Jesus has done. And as you consider that we are children of the promise that God made to Abraham, not because we're making deals with God, but by faith, this is real freedom. But for you this morning, are you running to rules? Are you running to Mount Sinai because you like the checklists? Or are you running to the cross? Where are you running? Are you running to what crushes you or are you running to the one who's freed you? This is what Paul is fighting for. But for you, because you find list keeping easy, can you relate to the crowds when they shouted at Jesus? John chapter six, verse 28. They replied, we wanna perform God's works too. What should we do? Bunch of list keepers in that crowd that day. And Jesus says, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Will you? Have you? This is the question. Will you believe on Jesus? Or will you continue to believe on yourself? Those are the two options in life. To lean on your understanding or to lean on his promises. As we go to the corners of the room this morning, we are leaning on his promises. We are leaning on the fact that God said, I will save you. You cannot save yourself. When you take that bread and you dip it in the juice, you are saying, Jesus, in my place, thank you. Thank you that you lived the perfect life that I could not live. Thank you that you died the death that I deserve to die. And thank you by your resurrection, I receive the reward that you got. doesn't doesn't make sense to our world doesn't make sense to a lot of people but to us who are being saved it is the power of God and I'm so thankful for it this morning and I pray that you will be as well father we love you and I just I'm begging you that we will not teeter on the line of loving our idols and being bound by things that are not God at all And loving our legalism and the rules and being able to say we keep these things, but we don't even know who you are. Free us. Break us free so that we truly are, as Paul will say next week, free to serve you. It's different. It's all different because of Jesus. And I pray this morning that you would make yourself known.